Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. This podcast is developed by Friends for a Nonviolent World, FNVW, whose mission is to champion nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every living being. Violence impacts us all. Our goal here is to give voice to people who are working to use active nonviolence those who have experienced violence, and those who have committed acts of violence. Each week we'll hear stories that will deepen our understanding of violence and the principles of nonviolence. Our host today is Joanne Perry, a longtime activist and lifelong pacifist. Welcome. Today we're interviewing Charlotte Gorham, a dedicated activist working with the Quakers, also known as the Friends, while attending college at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. Ms. Gorham has a focus of studies in both geography and in political science, and her recent lobbying and political efforts have been focused on immigration reform and preventing a nuclear war with North Korea. That's amazing, you know. She is currently affiliated with the Friends Committee on National Legislation, and the FCNL is the longest surviving religious lobbying group in the United States. They started way back, I think, in World War II. Mm -hmm. And they are a central pillar of the newly formed Twin City Advocacy Team as they work toward enforcing Congress's constitutional responsibility of being the body who does the declaration of war in the U.S. Our podcast explores the ideas, concepts, and interplay of active nonviolence, also known as pacifism. Today, we're hoping to delve into the ideas behind pacifism as a politically useful means and what calls a young person to take up that commitment. Thank you all for listening. Welcome, Charlotte. Thank you so much for having me. Please tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and how your commitment to nonviolence came about. Yeah, so like you said, I'm a student at McAllister College. Um, I'm a first year. I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut with the New Haven Friends Meeting. And I grew up throughout the New England Yearly Meeting youth groups. So I've been a Quaker my whole life. I was born into Quakerism and I really enjoy living the values of Quakerism in my life. Would you be willing to tell us what values those might be? Of course. The six Quaker values taught in uh, first day school um, are the spices. So we have S, we have simplicity, P, peace, I, integrity, C, community, E, equality, and S, sustainability or stewardship. So I really, I, I guess I think I really strive to keep those values in mind while living my busy daily life. I have heard those values mentioned before. Mm-hmm. One of the things that surprised me is the element of mysticism is <laughs> included in those. But mm-hmm. it seems to me mm-hmm. that friends or you know, religious society of friends or Quakerism at mm-hmm. its basic level is that of a mystic. Mm-hmm. Do you find yeah. that to be true or... Is it easier to access the friends through the the values? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I think that's sort of what's taught, and that's the upfront, this is what we do. Um, but I think, you're right, I think Quakers are at heart very mystic and um, very thoughtful and um, are really in touch with the spirit or that of God or whatever um, you want to call it, um, the light within 
you. Um, and I think that is also the light within me is very important. I try to keep that in mind and I try to keep in mind that everybody around me also has similar lights. Um, Can you tell a story of that? When the, the light led you from within? Hmm. So I uh, attended Friends Camp, which is a camp in South China, Maine, for my whole youth summers. <laughs> That's where I was. And I think that was one of the first times where I really felt connected to my light and connected to other people's lights. Um, there was a, a waterfront day, which is where we go down to the, the beach and everyone goes and, you know, plays in the water and uh, does cards and plays volleyball and it's just a fun day at the beach sort of thing. And it was pouring rain. And <laughs> this was, you know, <laughs> um, a bunch of 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds all at camp ready to have a great day by the beach and it was pouring rain and we went anyway. And I remember I went down and most people were staying in the boathouse that day and just sort of doing indoor games. And I decided I was gonna go out into the water, in the rain, into the lake with a few of my friends. And someone was leading a yoga class inside of the lake with pouring rain. <laughs> and it was just this moment of incredible bliss where I could not be happier. And I just felt so connected to myself and to my friends around me and to the water and to the rain. And it was just so beautiful. And I've never, that was probably like 10 years old. And I've never forgotten that. And I think that was really the first time in my life that I still remember where I was so connected to my light um, and to the light of other people around me and to the light of the world too. You may not know it, but your face just lights up when you tell that story. <laughs> wonder, did your life change? Were you different after that moment? Because it sounds like a spiritual awakening. I mean, I think so. I think there was also the fact that it was at a Quaker camp, and I've been raised Quaker. I think in that moment, I, I guess I really realized that I want to be Quaker for my whole life, and this way of life really fits for me. It sounds very powerful. Thank <laughs> yeah. you for sharing it. Yeah. Well, we're kind of on the topic. So how has being a friend or a Quaker influenced you? How do you th see your actions as different than other people's? Or how do you feel it leads you through your day and your work? I think one of the biggest things about being Quaker that I really try to live through, and I think um, my mom really has taught me this throughout my life, and I think it's one of the, the greatest lessons she's taught me, is seeing the light in everybody around you. No matter if they, you know, keep tapping their foot and it's really bothering me or they didn't say thank you when I did something nice to them something like that what I try to really focus my my attention on is the light in other people realizing that everybody's going through other things that I don't know about and people are living their own lives and I need to recognize that take a step back and say okay this person might be doing something that I might not like but I really need to capture the light in that person and find their goodness. Much of the teaching and much of the understanding out in the real world, or the world that's not friends, mm -hmm. is 
the the idea of pacifism, of nonviolence, mm-hmm. of peace. They're known as the peace, one of the three peace churches. Mm-hmm. So, how does a desire for nonviolence, that basic friends tenant, mm-hmm. influence the way you think and the way you act? I've always known that my political values are also very aligned with the Quaker values. I think it's more than just nonviolence. It's peace. You know, it's active, positive peace instead of just the absence of violence. And I think that's a very Quaker testimony too. And I think I am able to live out these values through my work with FCNL and the advocacy teams. And I hope to do more work with nonviolence and peace in the future. Oh, that's a very good (laughs) lead-in. Why don't you tell us about the lobbying you've done with the Friends Committee on National Legislation, the FCNL, and the work you're currently focused on with the local lobbying group, the Twin City Advocacy Teams. Mm -hmm. So Friends Committee on National Legislation hosted 500 students across the country, and they taught us how to lobby on Congress. So I, with another Minnesota student, lobbied our Congress people on the Hill. And it was an incredible experience. We lobbied um, on DACA. We're lobbying for the protection of dreamers and their families and immigrant families and without hurting border communities. And it was, it was a very powerful experience because there were dreamers there lobbying their Congress people, which was incredible. It was just such an incredible sense of bravery in the room. And it was so powerful to have all of these students and youth and community leaders all in one place, all working towards the same thing. And we were packed in one area for about three days and then we all dispersed on Capitol Hill. It was an incredible experience. And I was lobbying two senators, uh, Tina Smith and Amy Klobuchar, and we talked to two of their staffers. Both of them were in agreement with our ask, our legislative ask, but they were not, they were sort of hesitant to say, oh yeah, we'll totally do stuff. They were more, you're right, but the Republicans are in majority in Congress right now, so we can't do anything. Okay, bye. (laughs) We have to go to our next meeting now. That was sort of the experience of one of the staffers. But the other staffer, it was very influential because he, he was sort of saying that the reason you're here is so important. And I, yes, it is gridlocked and we can't do much. But the fact that you came here from Minnesota and all of these students are coming from all of these different places to advocate for what they believe in is so powerful. And that is how you change Congress people's minds. That's how it works. Um, And building a relationship with your members of Congress is absolutely effective. And so that hearing that was really empowering, especially after that sort of downer of an experience we had a few hours before. And I think that experience really pushed me to keep working with the advocacy team here in St. Paul. It sounds inspiring. Yeah, it was. It was. Charlotte's going to tell us a little bit about her newest work, completing that lovely weekend of lobbying in Washington, D.C. She was inspired enough to come back and begin with the Twin Cities advocacy team. Tell us about what you learned in Washington and how it might impact uh, your work on the lobbying team. And you can tell us a little bit about what that lobbying team is doing Mm -hmm, this year. mm -hmm. That would be lovely. So the Twin Cities Advocacy Team is a group of about 30 people around the Twin Cities who are committed to working on lobbying Congress to prevent nuclear war with North Korea. And especially restricting the president from 
being able to start a preemptive war with North Korea. The tools that I learned lobbying, they're directly applicable to the advocacy team here in the Twin Cities. Well, I was under the impression, and it sure looked that way to me as I kind of stepped into that, mm -hmm. that the Twin City advocacy team, all these glorious, lovely, experienced people turned mm -hmm. and voted you as leader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that inspiration came through. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I guess my official title would be communicator with FCNL. So I sort of facilitate their advocacy tools that they're providing us with our lobbying visits. And I communicate back with them how our lobby visits go, and they communicate with me how to facilitate that. So I'm very happy to do this, and I'm so honored to be in this role. Something made you choose to <laughs> go to Washington, mm -hmm. and something made you choose to show up the Twin City Advocacy Teams. Mm -hmm. What was it? What led you to this work? Well, actually, it was a very big coincidence that I found the Advocacy Team, because I, on some morning in like September or something, I decided to go to the 8.30 worship at Twin Cities meeting, and I never, I would normally go to the 10 o'clock, but I went to the 8.30 and uh, Rob Axman actually had made an announcement about it. And I was, I was very struck by that. And I thought that would be a great opportunity for me to live out my values in, in policy work. So I went up to him and said, I would love to join. And then I did. And then I learned more about FCNL and found this spring lobby weekend happening in March, and I said, what a perfect way to continue my work. Yeah. It strikes me as quite remarkable because it never occurred to me mm -hmm. at any point in my life to say, I want to be a lobbyist as a way of living out <laughs> my um, active nonviolent values. Yeah. It never came to my mind. So yeah. I'm, I'm finding this is a political tool, an effective way of actually mm -hmm. doing things mm -hmm. and changing the world to be kind of unique to you. <laughs> it's impressing me. But I noticed one thing about a lot of the work that you do, and you talked about it earlier. It involves the energy, the synergy, maybe, of a number of people. You talked about all those people in the room focused on a single thing, and you've talked mm -hmm. about the advocacy teams and the FCNL. How does that group planning help with the work and your inspiration? Because I feel that in, in the words that you're using. Mm -hmm. Well, I think community has been such a big part of my life, my entire life. And I, I think that working together and forming relationships is how things get done, how policy gets implemented. Nonviolence comes from peace, comes from communities working together. When I was in high school, I went to monthly youth retreats and they were such a pillar to my spiritual life and to my emotional well-being. I would go from, you know, the isolation of high school where everybody is, you know, worried about their AP Gov notes or people were very worried about each other, about themselves and not really concerned about each other's well-being. I found that pretty isolating. When I would go to these Quaker youth retreats, it was so beautifully orchestrated where all of us were friends, we're still our friends, and it was such a sense of community. We would have cuddle puddles on the floor where we would just hold each other, hold each other in the light, really, because we all were coming from these this place of similar academic troubles and friend troubles from high school, and then we would come 
from all kids all around high schoolers all around New England. So it was nice to have people who didn't really know you as your high school self, but more as yourself. <laughs> and that was incredible because I could really, really be myself and I could just hold myself and hold my friends in such a way that I really couldn't do in high school. Building that community with my Quaker friends was such a big part of how I live today and how I try to build new communities similar to that, to the love that was there in my life today. Well, a lot of the work that we do on this podcast is letting people know that even if they've never thought about nonviolence or active nonviolence or pacifism, mm -hmm. that it obviously is a way that if they choose to do so, they can live that way too. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about why active nonviolence is important to you as an individual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We thought about that. I guess the first contact that I came in with violence was when I was in seventh or eighth grade. So I'm from Connecticut, which is about 20, 25 minutes away from Newtown, where the Sandy Hook shooting was. And I remember I was very confused as to what was happening that day. And it was in December. I heard, we, we all heard about it. We were all at school and we all heard about it. And I remember people on the phones with their parents crying and it was just mayhem and I we because we were you know 25 minutes away and we were a school so obviously the administration was very worried about us we've had at my high school at my middle school we've had um, lockdown drills all the time because of it people you can't let anybody in the doors without people getting a name tag and a screening to make sure they weren't a shooter <laughs> which is like Crazy, which is crazy because it, it's a school, it's an academic setting. And I think from that day on when I knew I had friends whose parents' co-workers died, their, their children had died. So I, you know, it was a little bit, I didn't know anybody personally, but I knew that it was close to me and I knew people who were deeply affected by this. From that day, I've just realized that violence of any kind is just horrible and atrocious. And I really, really believe that I need to work to end violence in this world and, and create peace. I'm going to ask a question that may be a little too intellectual for the moment, but mm -hmm. I, if it, that is a powerful story. There's no way I can get around that. Mm. Um, when you discovered that nonviolence is the only way to, that you want to live. Mm -hmm. And that's what I heard in that Sandy Hook story. Yeah. How did you move it from the way you want to live into concrete work? Because a lot of what you're doing is concrete activist work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how did you move it from the spiritual love and you know the glory of the moment to this is who I'm going to be and I'm going to help? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a big leap. Yeah. How did you get there? I sort of... When, after that day, I didn't really know what to do because, you know, I was in middle school and then I, then I went to high school. I couldn't vote and I was, I don't know, I just felt very not empowered. <laughs> and I've, I never really knew what I wanted to do when I grew up. Not that I'm grown up at all right now, but I never really, I couldn't really pinpoint exactly what I, what my calling was. But I knew I loved being Quaker. I knew I wanted to live out 
these values in some way. And I knew, I very much knew my political beliefs. And I've always been an activist in so much, insofar as I go to protests and uh, I volunteer at, at several places. But I never really thought that I could combine both my political self and my spiritual self into one occupation. And I think lobbying is an inherently Quaker thing to do. It really fits with how I want to live out my values in my life. You have a real surety about you, a sense of <laughs> self-confidence, and it's lovely to see. But usually what traps us the most are not just life circumstances, it's our mm. own doubts. Mm -hmm. Are your own doubts playing in here? And if so, could you tell us a little bit about them? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, a lot of this self-confidence is... I, I try to um, be as confident as possible, but often I don't have that energy in me that day. And I think one of the most important things in trying to live out a nonviolent life is taking care of yourself first. Because taking care of your mind and your body always come first before you can take care of other people and the world. <laughs> I sometimes really struggle with how I need to take care of myself and how to really pinpoint what I am lacking and what I need in that moment. But I think I've just realized lately that my mental health is more important than my schoolwork, than my, my work in the world. I don't think it's possible to get anything done effectively without having a real sense of yourself and being healthy within yourself. In the last five minutes or so, you've gone from being powerless in, <laughs> in the aftermath of Sandy Hook to being somebody who knows how to not only care for herself, <laughs> but has a pretty good set plan as to how to be powerful. <laughs> well, <That's> thank you. <laughs> nice to see you. <laughs> Charlotte, I've touched on your future, but I'm curious. Do you have a plan to continue in your leadership role, and what might that be? As part of that question, how can you be assisted, and what would you like to see happen? Well, um, I mean, I hope to continue working with the advocacy team here in the Twin Cities. That has been a very grounding experience for me. I think it's a weekly, we meet every week pretty much, and it's very humbling and lovely to meet with everybody um, every week. I think if everybody in the team really does their part, and I think everybody is really doing their part, really stepping up, I do feel really assisted <laughs> in my role, um, and I really appreciate that about the advocacy team. Well, that's absolutely yeah. lovely. Yeah. <laughs> Leadership is a big word, <laughs> and um, it tends to feel sometimes like it needs to be male, but I see in you a uh, an energy that sees leadership as um, emboldening and holding a community so that the community can go forward. Is that, mm -hmm. is that kind of what is true for you? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it was an interesting experience going into becoming the leader of the advocacy team because, you know, I just, I'm a first year at McAllister, so I, I've been here for six or seven, eight months, and I don't really know these people as well as they know each other. So that was a little bit interesting, but disconcerting even, right? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really want to step out, be out of place, you know. Part of that Twin City advocacy teams when they made you leader, and it was unanimous. I there was not a single person in the room who said no, and I also noticed in that space that you didn't hesitate. You took up the mantle. You didn't say it's going to be too much work. It's, it's I feel out of place. You didn't say any of that. Mm -hmm. So when 
you see leadership in your future. Where do you see yourself going with that sort of stuff? Can you see this working in a boardroom, just in lobbying? Where can you see it move? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I just want to say that was, it was a really humbling and honoring experience um, for the advocacy team to announce me as a leader. And I think I enjoy being a leader, but I think I also enjoy stepping back and really seeing what the community wants to say and what they want to work on. I mean, in my life, I really don't know what I want to do for a career necessarily, but I do really enjoy being able to sense what a community is feeling and figure out how to lead them in a way that they are wanting to go. We are here in large part to let people know that they too can live the lives that they choose to live, even in the face of violence. What would you say to people who might think it is too hard to lead such a principled life? Ideas, maybe hope for them? Yeah, I mean, I think what I was saying before with taking care of yourself, taking care of yourself first is really what makes me able to do this work. If you mentally feel good, that gives me hope. When I feel like I can do this work, I think that is when I feel hopeful for the violence that I am facing. Thank you very much, Charlotte. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It has been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World and the work that we do, please visit our website, fnvw.org, or give us a call at 651-917-0383.